Welcome to SECC. We pray that you are blessed today as you listen. Good morning. This morning's reading is from Ephesians chapter 6, and it's the armour of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the power of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled round your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray for me also that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. No, I'm not Gary. Uh, Apologies about that. Normal service will be resumed uh, in due course uh, and I expect everyone will be very pleased when that happens. But we'll, we'll see, we'll see. But this morning we're going to take a closer look at the book of Ephesians, and thank you, Dion, for that reading. If you have a Bible, make sure you're open at Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, if you don't, see me afterwards in red letters. Make sure you've got your Bible open. So, before we um, start in bring the session completely to order, let's have a quick quiz. Who likes a good war film? No one. Excellent. <laughs> I was expecting a big roar. Well, who likes a good action film? Does that work? Excellent, good. Quick quiz, all we need to do is call out, as we can now call out, call out the name of the film. Are we ready? Okay, hopefully the first film will come up. What's that called? So Private Jones, did you say? Ryan, right, thank you. Yep, excellent, next one. Ooh, bit left field. No, not Waterloo. Who said? Charge of the Library, excellent, well done. Charge of the Library, well done. Bit more up to date, still old. Joker on the right there. Full metal jacket. Well done, Andy. Excellent. Good job. And finally, oh no, I think it's penultimately. Flash Gordon fan in the room. Nice to hear it. Nice to hear it. The Birdmen. Can you do the impression? <laughs> Bring me Gordon's body alive. Yeah. And the last one. Richard with You know the director of that film? Oh, it's just that you've answered quite a few correctly, so I thought I'd do Anyway. Um, yeah, what, what have all these got in common? Well, they're all kind of Hollywood stock films. I love them. They're all nice and easy to understand, certainly for me. Um, and that's what a battle should look like. That's what a war film should be. Good guys, bad guys, heroes and villains. We know who the belligerents are. It's nice and straightforward to understand. But is it real? 
even these films, of course, they've got a, a rather nice tinge to them. I suspect the producers had their own thoughts of how it should look, and that's kind of how we've cognitively understood it over the years, I guess. One thing that I probably was thinking about was that all of these films, they don't really show reality of war, of battle, of conflict. Typically, certainly since World War II, there's been a whole host of conflicts around the world, and it's not always clear who the belligerents are, not always clear what the motives are. It's not black and white. It's not easy to understand, typically. It's more of a patchwork than a nice demarcation. But one thing they probably do all have in common is the, the effects are all material. They affect the material world, whether it's aircraft, guns, soldiers, tanks. It's all material. But should we look beyond the material when it comes to battles? And I think we certainly should. Douglas Adams famously joked, the speed of light is so fast that for thousands of years, people thought that it didn't move at all. And it's the same in the spiritual realm uh, to a certain degree. People are so convinced by what we can see, feel, taste, touch, smell, that we don't always take a peep behind the curtain of the unseen. After all, the skeptic says, if it can't be tested in a laboratory, then it doesn't exist. But we Christians should have the edge here. We know, or we should know, there is actually an unseen battle taking place, and it's happening all around us. Don't think C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia was just a book written for the kids until they grew up to read adult stuff. He had a good grasp with his background of the material world, and he had a good grasp of the non-material world as well. And for some reason, we tend not to talk about it all that much. You're down the pub with your mates, drinking your pint of Carlsberg, or if you're a lady, your pint of bitter, then you might find yourself suddenly at arm's length from your colleagues if you're talking about this subject, or worse, on your own. And yet, it is an absolutely critical subject to not just read about, but hopefully understand. I mean, even the atheist, atheist will tell you there's a non-material world out there. Even they will tell you that there's some things that can't be explained. And that's because we're all made in the image of God, Genesis 1.27. We're all made in the image of God, not necessarily looking like him, but we have his characters. They're inherent within us, whether we want it or whether we don't. And the non-believer will have that characteristic, whether they wish for it or not. And you'll often see this if you have any long discussion with an atheist. If you listen to them carefully, they'll demonstrate great indignation about certain injustices in the world. They will. And they're borrowing from the biblical worldview. It's fascinating. So what's the best way to investigate this subject? Uh, well, we all turn to our own experiences. And in my particular job, we look at claims for losses, damage to cargoes, ships, aircraft, jewelry, that sort of thing. And when a trainee comes along to me and says, uh, I've got this claim and I need to know whether it's genuine, there'll be a few tick box type exercises that I'll ask the trainee and the sorts of things that I was asked when I was in the business, starting in the business. And it's things such as, well, what happened? What were the motives? Are there any red flags? Sanctions issues? Fraud issues? Are those all okay? Yeah, they're all okay. Okay, so do we know what happened? Who were the witnesses? Where's the survey report? Have you looked at the policy terms and conditions? What jurisdiction are we in? You know, UK civil law differs a bit from the Italian civil code. We need to know some certain facts and figures before we come to determination. 
<laughs> I can tell you from experience, if you make the wrong decision, you will be roasted. You will be roasted. And that's a picture of roasted cauliflower, by the way, because we're vegans. Just throwing it out there. No pressure. No pressure. You want to talk to us afterwards? Come on, have a chat. So when we're looking at the spiritual realm, we do really well to turn to an absolute authority, a trustworthy source, reliable source, plausible, genuine, witnesses. And of course, no, it's not Wikipedia. It is the Holy Bible. We know it's reliable. We know it's God-breathed, according to Paul's second, uh, according to Second Timothy three sixteen. And if that's not enough for you, we know that God cannot lie. Hebrews and Samuel give us just one of many examples of that fact. So you know you come to the right place. So now that's sorted out. The next step is, where do we start? Well. Does the Bible say anything about spiritual realm? Of course it does. It's dripping with it. But where do we find a good point to begin? Well, when we arrive at the book of Ephesians, we stumble across a literary feast. It's a stonking place to start. First of all, it's a short book, only six chapters. Um, it's quite formal compared with some of Paul's other letters. But if you'd like to get straight to the point, straight into the meat and potatoes or something, then this is the book for you on this particular subject and other subjects, as we'll see in a moment. It's a really good summary of an awful lot of doctrine. I mean, in terms of easy read, I like an easy read. If you're able to open one of those bold washing containers with the capsules inside, with the two flaps, and reseal it afterwards, then you'll have no trouble reading Ephesians. Um, so just to set the stage, we know from Acts 18 um, that Paul did visit Ephesus. Um, I've put it up there on the map just in case you were thinking of visiting. It's in modern-day Turkey, in case you accidentally get a flight to Israel. It's not there. Um, and I think the, Paul wrote these letters. Well, he did write letters to specific churches on specific issues, frankly, at various times. A good example of that is his letters to the Galatians. But on Ephesians, it was a, more, it was a broader letter, wider topics, more doctrinal what do we mean by doctrinal? Well, creeds, tenets, principles of the Christian life. So it's in two halves, like a good European international football. Sorry, is it too soon to talk about the football? Okay. Let's think of it as a Premier League uh, game. It's in two halves. Uh, and in the first three chapters, we have the first half. And in the second three chapters, we have the second half. The first three chapters are more a kind of a vertical arrangement between ourselves and our holy master. Uh, that's fascinating reading in itself. The second of three, the second half, is more about our relationship with each other. So there's quite two distinct arrangements within Ephesians. And when you come to read it, and um, we'll give you your homework in a moment, but when you come to read it, um, you'll find, if you think about it in those two segments, it actually makes it quite uh, easy to read. So looking at the first half, the kind of vertical or doctrinal arrangement, we've got some really big, big guns here. We've got being blessed through Jesus. Uh, he chose us before he made the world. Predestination, fascinating topic, all on its own. Uh, maybe not for today. Uh, that's one for yourself, Gary. Sorry, uh, for next time. Uh, he commands the timing. He's got this enormous program. We've got this inheritance. We've got the grace, amazing grace, as the song goes. And if you think about that for more than a few seconds, you'll be absolutely astonished with the concept of it. 
Uh, and finally, on a somber note, that sin has, is commanded by something called the unseen world. And we learn a little bit about that later, that sort of chapter too. After half time, we come to the kind of horizontal or, or the practical Christian living type principles. So we've got some, actually some radical things highlighted here. Gentiles called citizens who share equally with the Jews. You kidding? This is radical, astonishing claim to make at that time. No wonder they were after him with pitchforks and torches a lot of the time. Then he's talking about being filled with the Spirit. Not, this is my paraphrase, not being drunk on spirits. He's talking about being filled with a genuine Spirit, not drinking alcohol. Um, get rid of your old cloak of lust and deception, which still peppers us today all over the country and the world. Um, don't let the sun go down on your anger. I'm trying saying that without thinking of Nick Kershaw. You've done well. To love your husband and your wife. Uh, famous verse uh, in chapter 5. Regularly misquoted. Regularly misquoted and typically taken out of context. Um, and interestingly, as Paul relays this message, as he relays it, he's so overcome with the sheer weight and wonder of it all that you know he actually drops to his knees just thinking about it. He actually, if you look at um, chapter 3, verse 14, he says, when I think of this, I fall to my knees. He's not even talking at this point. He's not talking to anyone. He's not writing. He's just thinking about it. That's how, how powerful... It is. It's like an electric current going through him as he's conveying, God's conveying his message through him to others. It is uh, humbling. So that sets the stage. That's the kind of backdrop um, for the final chapter, chapter 6 of Ephesians. And chapter 6 is kind of is the crescendo. He delivers news now which some of us may find uncomfortable. It's a bit like when you're at Alton Towers and you're queuing up for the, one of the faster rides like stealth, for example. And you see those signs, don't you? It says, if you have a bad back, or nervous disposition, or a funny neck, or you're pregnant, etc., do not board. Well, I'm afraid we're going to board anyway, so strap in, because it's quite intriguing from this point onwards. So chapter 6, Paul talks about a battle. He talks about a battle, and as we heard from Dion earlier, Paul's letter includes a very rare insight into a military conflict which is taking place all around us, whether we like it or not, whether we see it or not, whether we feel it or not, it's happening. It's happening, so just bear that in mind. Now, Paul uses metaphors, of course. As I mentioned, he was in custody in Rome when this was happening, when he wrote this letter, so it's not really unusual or unexpected that he decides to use military metaphors. He saw the Roman soldiers every day, I expect, um, they were he wasn't kind of in a jail prison, but probably a rented house, probably with guards 24 hours. So he says in verse 10, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power, as Dion read. Be strong in the... If, if you like underlying things in your Bible, um, then I would suggest you underline his. I think the emphasis is on his. We know he's mightily powerful, but I think here he's saying it's his power given to others, given to us. And then verse 11, similarly, put on all of God's armor. Underline, I would, God's armor. It's not ours, it's his, and he's giving it to us, and we are welcome to place it on. Uh, why? Why do we need armor? Why do we have to be strong in his power, is a question you may ask. Well, verse 11 relieves us uh, of any curiosity that we may have. 
so that you can stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. So that you can stand firm, get that pencil out again, against all. It's not just one strategy. We all have weaknesses. We all have strengths. I'm afraid the devil knows you just as well. So he'll know your weaknesses. And you probably know them as well, if you're honest with yourself. So they're going to be a variety of strategies. So that's why we need his mighty work, uh, his mighty power. That's why we need his armor. And I think we would do well to recall that. Um, used to have a, a lunchtime chat in St. Helens in the city of London. Uh, it was like a sandwich and a watered-down orange juice, uh, which is okay. It's quite a good atmosphere. And we just, he said, you just munch and I'll talk. And this is William Taylor, um, the rector, still there, uh, rector at St. Helens in uh, Leadenhall Street, or maybe it's St. Mary's Axe. Uh, but anyway, he was uh, an ex-member of the Royal Green Jackets, 1st Battalion, so he was, uh, he was quite partial to giving a few um, military metaphors. And I could clearly remember, I don't have it written down, but I can clearly remember him saying this. And by the way, he spoke a bit like Edward Fox from Bridge Too Far, so bear with me. But he said, uh, Jesus has come. Think of it as the Normandy landings. We have a beachhead. We are now on our way to victory, but the battle goes on. Um, with apologies to Edward Fox and indeed William Taylor. So again, stand firm in his power. Don't skip over verse 10 there. His power. Have you ever messed up using your power? Your wisdom? So I'm not looking at anyone in particular. <laughs> but have you? Ask yourself the question, should I have prayed first and used his wisdom and his power? Yes, there's a battle here going on with unseen forces. If you reject this part of scripture, by the way, I don't think we do, but if you do, then... It's a bit like rejecting gravity. You'll, you'll soon collide with it at some point when you drop a glass or something similar. Do you remember Peter and Job's comment? Peter chapter 5, famous comment, the devil prowls around you like a roaring lion. Are we all familiar with that verse? Remember Job? Satan was walking to and fro, the chilling verse, walking to and fro. Most of the time these attacks are going to be subtle, by the way. They're going to be subtle. Do you cheat on that assignment if you're in education? Do you cheat on your tax return? Do you pay cash because you know? Do you use the language of your peers? That's one that I always get caught on. Do you use the, the bad language of those around you? Do you laugh at dirty jokes? Remember shamefully hearing someone saying, call yourself a Christian. It's easy, easily to fall in as honey trap. Lust. Is that an issue that affects us? Should do. Affects everyone. Do you have a teenager or someone even younger who's on their phone quite a bit? You probably spared more than a passing thought as to what content they're viewing, what language is being used, the attitudes that are prevailing and being conveyed to them, thoughts. Very subtle, very subtle. Satan was walking to and fro. But what about going along with a kind of general, easygoing culture of disbelief? It's, again, quite subtle. More and more pressure nowadays to comply. More and more pressure. If you don't believe that, by the way, try a little experiment. If you're using social media, stick up something on social media from the Bible. A bit of biblical scripture. Something simple. Talk about the sanctity of marriage. Brace yourself. It will give you an answer as to where you sit in an unbelieving culture. You see, Scripture swims against the tide of culture. And the tide's rising, I think. 
If you're still in any doubt at all as to the reality of this battle, then verse 12 of Ephesians 6 should well and truly button it down for you. Uh, Here it gets raw. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, as Dion said, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits of the heavenly places. The weapon of choice is the metaphoric arrow. You can call it a rock. You can call it a dart. It's somewhat irrelevant. But when it strikes, you know. You may be the only one who knows what it feels like. Here's a question for everyone listening and here. Have you ever felt the cold blade of one of these arrows? Answer silently to yourself. Or look at this, look at this way. If there, were literally, if there were literal and visible arrows jutting out of your upper body, how many would you count? How many flights would you see? Chances are there isn't a single person listening this morning who hasn't been scarred by repeated strikes. He was walking to and fro. So that's the bad news. But the scripture never leaves us high and dry, does it? It never leaves us high and dry. There is good news. We get equipment to defend ourselves against these arrows. Starting at verse 15, Paul gets now very, very specific. So let's dive in to the verses that uh, Dion was reading earlier. So what do we get in this armory? Well, we get a belt. Get the belt of truth, according to verse 15. The famous question, who asked Jesus about the truth? Do we remember? Pilate. Yeah, Pilate. He asked Jesus, what is truth? Has anyone ever asked you what truth is or challenged you on what truth means? I have heard that conversation, been in that conversation in the past. See, an unbelieving culture will usually say there is no real truth. There's no ultimate truth. We've got our own truths. Yeah, what's true for you? That's fine. Do what you want to do. I'm over here. This is my truth. There's no absolute. And they'll probably also view the the fact that there's no moral authority, which is absolute. It's all a matter of preference. What's good for you is fine. What's good for me, that's my thing. Thank you very much. It's very fashionable nowadays to avoid ultimate standards. And you may notice that. It's certainly bleeding through to corporations, university campuses, and so on. And I think it's going to continue in that direction. (laughs) a rock band in the late 80s, early 90s that I was really into called uh, Raging Slab. I'm, I'm blushing. Raging Slab. Has anyone heard? I'd be horrified if anyone was into Raging Slab uh, in this room. But uh, is that your hand up, Rob? No? Okay. Sorry. I thought I saw your hand move. You're just doing glass. <laughs> um, yeah, they were, they were kind of fairly modest uh, in terms of success based in New York, uh, even though they looked like they were Southern Harmonic. That's a clever marketing thing. Um, so they were never as big as Guns N' Roses or Bon Jovi, but I really liked them. And they wrote this track called Take a Hold. And uh, it caught my eye at the time, and I thought, wow, this is quite, this is quite incisive, in, um, insightful. Uh, and it says, what's the point of race cars, rocket ships, and rock and roll? Telephones go speed of light, the truth cannot be told. And of course, what they're getting at is there's all this technology out there. Um, and you can travel at the speed of light in telephone lines and radio. Uh, and yet, you still can't tell, you still deceive people. It's still a deceitful world. It's the fallen world, is what they're really saying. Um, and of course, technology has moved on since then. We've now got, do you know how many WhatsApp messages are exchanged every 24 hours in the world? Anyone want to take a, take a shot? Two million? Two billion. Two billion. Anyone want to go higher or lower? 
No? Is that the final? Where's my hammer? Two, two. Um, it's 100 billion a day is exchanged. So things have moved on since then. I wonder how many of those are truthful or struggle with the truth. It makes you wonder. Richard Branson can go to what they call the Kármán line, you know, the edge of the exosphere. We can buy a ticket for $250,000 to go into space or near space. And yeah, can we still tell the truth? Can we still tell the truth? I was reminded of uh, James chapter 3, uh, 3 to 5, where James talks about the tongue, the small part of the body, which can boast greatly. It can change the direction of not only your own life, but other people's lives, actually, the tongue. Same with my sort of thing, a, a large ship with a tiny rudder, a tiny little rudder, and one degree to port can change the country you arrive in. You know, it's, it's got an immensely profound effect. We need to wear the belt of truth because he's walking to and fro. What's next in the armory? The breastplate of righteousness. Hmm. What was the breastplate used for by the Romans to protect vital organs, like the heart, for example? And it's used nowadays. Uh, the name's changed. It's Kevlar, or we call it a stab vest for the police. But it's the same principle. It's to protect the chest and the vital organs. What's the word righteousness? I mean, have you ever been accused as a Christian, in a Christian sense, of being self-righteous? Secular society sometimes wrongly says that religion is either something to make people feel guilty to control them, or they would wrongly say we're superior and it's an exclusive self-righteous club. I've heard both uh, comments, actually. Neither is true, of course. Um, David Guzik, I think, describes this best, this word. It's not our own earned righteousness David Guzik says, not a feeling of righteousness, but a righteousness received by faith in Christ. It gives us a general sense of confidence and awareness of our standing and position. I might add that um, that position is one, as mentioned earlier, as being saved by grace. As the arrows strike, recall that fact and feel your divine armor, if you like, metaphorical armor, tightly wrapped around you. Then we get to the next item in our cabinet, uh, and that is the boots of peace. It's really referring to the gospel of peace, which is a direct quote from Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful, and this is, this is lovely, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news, the good news of peace and salvation, the good news that the God of Israel reigns. And there's a few slight different translations depending on what you're more comfortable with, but it's, it's a beautiful passage in either, either direction. There's clearly favor given for those who proclaim peace. And indeed, as Chuck Swindle says, a marked increase in the quality of life when the Lord guides you in accordance with the boots of peace. Don't miss the last three words in that passage. Don't miss them. What are they? Be fully prepared. Ever been running late for something? You can't find your shoes? Or can't find the right shoes? Or can't get the shoes on a little person in the house? Ever been in that situation? Can't do anything, can you, without your shoes? The boot metaphor really means be ready, be mobile, be flexible, be geared and keen to get out of the traps. With the truth, of course. Back to the menu, what have we got next? The shield of faith. Forgive the reference to Captain America. This was done spontaneity, my apologies. Here Paul mentions the fiery darts explicitly. 
by this point, and the ability of this piece of equipment to quench, quench the fiery darts, the fiery darts of the wicked one. Interesting uh, development of this particular metaphor. Well, I don't know if you're aware, but in, in certain times the Romans would, because of the heat of the region and so on, uh, they could actually catch fire because the shields were predominantly made of leather at one particular era. Uh, and so they would douse them in the local river or, or a lake and then go into battle. So this is where the kind of metaphoric view of quenching the flames come from. By the way, they can come suddenly. If you're not aware of that, you probably are aware. They can come suddenly and without warning. Have your shield doused in water to hand. By the way, you've heard the phrase, I expect there's strength in numbers. Very common phrase. Actually, I think it comes from Ecclesiastes 4, verse 12. It was an inventive tactic by the Romans that you probably learnt at school uh, with their shields. When the enemy came in with arrow fire, uh, they would kind of close ranks in a rectangular array and raise their shields in the middle and hold them up at the sides to form the tortoise formation. And Ecclesiastes 4.12 talks about being together with stronger, there's strength in numbers, essentially. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Thinking of that makes you want to rush to your nearest church, doesn't it? <laughs> your nearest congregation. Back to the menu. Number five, the helmet of salvation. Well, clearly the head is the command center of any soldier, anyone in battle, and hence the need for protection. A soldier, or in this case, the first African-American U.S. fast jet naval pilot, Madeleine Swagel, would be foolish to go into battle without some kind of head protection. In fact, there's a dotted line here from Paul's other letter to the Thessalonians uh, in chapter 5, verse 8, uh, whereby he talks in that letter about the hope of salvation, a real hope, a genuine inner hope of salvation, which essentially blasts away feelings of discouragement. By the way, do you know one of the devil's tricks, one of his most popular tricks is discouragement, discourages. Do you know that? In, in church surveys, and there are such things, the vast majority of people, when they're saddened and they're attacked, they're, they're discouraged. That's the first word that's mentioned. They just don't have any encouragement. That's intriguing, isn't it? So the helmet of salvation protects us from discouragement, the desire to give up, and on a positive side, um, it gives us hope in knowing that we're saved. Salvation, that's the reason it's so important. What's next? Back to the menu. The sword of the spirit, the weapon of choice. When we hear this word, the sword, of course, it's talking about the word of God. The idea is that the spirit provides a sword for you, or in this case, an SA. 80 standard issue British assault rifle. Either way, it's a weapon and it represents, as I say, the word of God. It can't be toyed with, by the way. We, we need to use the Bible effectively. We need to absorb his word effectively. Um, it's not a magic book. It's not a trick book. It's not a lucky rabbit's foot. It should be viewed in a measured, uh, in a measured way over a period of time not to be waved like some kind of Harry Potter spell. So just bear that in mind. The word of God is a weapon and it can be very, very effective. He'll equip us, don't forget. He'll tell us how to use the weapon, the right kind of thrust at the right time. A good example of this, if you're interested, uh, is in Matthew 4, verse 4. Uh, and in that chapter and verse, you'll see Jesus battling the temptation of Satan. Well-known story. He's in the wilderness, do you remember? Talking about bread. 
don't need that to live alone on that. It is, of course, the word of God that you need. Crack. You can almost hear the SA80 letting off around at that moment if you read it in that context. What's next? Well, I think it's the last one. The kind of bring it all together, bring all the above together. We say there are six pieces of equipment. Uh, there are really seven. I mean, prayer is equipment in one sense. It's like a field radio, I think, uh, following on from the military metaphors. We should pray in virtually every situation. We should. I hope we do. Whether it's group prayer, individual prayer, silent prayer, shouting prayer, no more tears left to cry prayer, whatever it is, just pray, I think, is the message. Again, coming back to Guzik, he says, we can say that it is through prayer that the spiritual strength and the armor of God go to the very word. It's a cement that brings everything together, binds it. Now, this isn't really a talk about prayer per se, but I couldn't resist throwing in something from Martin Luther. And here's a great quote from him. To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. So in conclusion, the book of Ephesians is a remarkable, remarkable peep through the curtain of the spiritual realm, the unseen realm. And we're all engaged in it, as I say, whether we appreciate that immediately or not. Some may find it discomforting, others may find it greatly comforting, understanding what their real surroundings are truly like. Charles Spurgeon doesn't mince his words on this topic. Well, he was an Essex boy, after all. If you tell me when God permits a Christian to lay aside his armor, I will tell you when Satan has left off temptation. Like the old knights in wartime, we must sleep with helmet and breastplate buckled on, for the arch-deceiver will seize our first unguarded hour to make us his prey, P-R-E-Y. But regardless of how we might feel, the most important point, I think, to take away is that God has given us his equipment. And the beauty of that, and the beauty is, that regardless of your shoe size, your chest width, you have the perfectly fitting armor, and it must be worn. The result, the result of all this, you can stand firm, stand firm against the tide. I'll just leave you with a few do's and don'ts and don'ts and do's. If you're a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy fan, no? Well, if you're a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy fan, don't panic, it's the first thing. Don't trust your own power, trust in his mighty wisdom. Don't trivialize what's happening in this battle. Don't trivialize it. The media, society, unbelieving, secular world will trivialize it, will trivialize anything Christian. Nothing else, just Christianity. It seems to be in the crosshairs of society for some reason. Don't trivialize it. It's very serious. And don't forget Paul's teaching to the Ephesians. There's a trove of valuable advice here. Uh, we'd, be, we'd do well, I think, to take it seriously. On the positive side, do trust God. Do know his word is reliable, as we earlier established. Do put on the armor. It will fit. Uh, and if you're a Matrix fan, do take the red pill. Let's just finish in a closing prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for bringing us together this morning and for knowing us intimately, knowing our personal situations, being there when there is incoming, for protecting us with your shielding at all times and for giving us a free gift of the beauty of your word. We thank you for Paul's letter, Father, 
and that all these years later your word, your word still reaches out to us. May this part of scripture remain on our hearts as we leave today. Indeed, we pray that we are all overflowing with the Holy Spirit, are encouraged, are motivated, are empowered to live our lives confidently as Christians and with the sure expectation that you walk right beside us. In Jesus' holy name, amen.